Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 32. Then they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James and John with him. And he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. He went a little farther and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Then he came and he found them sleeping and he said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, he went away and prayed and spoke the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy and they did not know what to answer him. Then he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? It's enough. The hour has come. Behold, the son of man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. The events in Mark chapter 14 have included the plots to betray Jesus in verses 1 and 2 by the religious leaders and Judas in verses 10 and 11. And then the preparation of his body by pouring expensive burial perfume on him in verses 3 through 9. And then we looked at the Passover meal in verses 12 through 26. And then the predictions in verses 27 through 31, how he would be deserted by all, how he would be denied by one. And then the events here that we just read in the Garden of Gethsemane in verses 32 through 42. Later, we're going to read about the arrest of Jesus in verses 43 through 49. And then the abandonment of Jesus in verses 50 through 52. And so here now in this garden, we see the servant's agony, his overwhelming struggle against sorrow, the anticipation of him bearing the sin of the world, his separation from his father, drinking, embracing the cup of God's wrath and suffering, the execution of his body. We examine the servant's submission to the father's will and then the ultimate victory. In verse 32, we begin with the servant's agony. Look what it says. Then they came to a place which is named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. The place is a garden that would have been thick with olive trees. Remember, in Jerusalem, the Passover meal has taken place. They have descended the great wall, if you will. They've passed over the brook Kidron. This is that deep, dark stream that runs in the valley. This is that same deep, dark stream that David would have passed over centuries earlier in the deepest and darkest moment of his life as he's running from his son's Desire to kill him. And so they arrive in Gethsemane. And by the way, Gethsemane is a word that means the place of the press or the place of the olive press. This would have been the place that there would have been a large stone and there would have been a large press and they would have gathered the fruit of the orchard. They would have brought it there and they would have crushed the olives in order for it to yield its precious fluid. And it makes perfect sense that the servants struggle takes place in a garden 
What a contrast between the first mention of a garden in the Bible, the garden of God in Eden, and then this garden of Gethsemane. In the first garden, Adam and Eve are invited to enjoy friendship and fellowship with God. They are prohibited from partaking of the fruit in that garden, at least one particular tree, the knowledge of good and evil. And then our earthly parents surrender to the satanic plot of the serpent. And so now in this garden, the new garden, there is another tree. It isn't just simply the olive trees that have gathered together, but there's this looming tree. It is the cross of Calvary that lies just beyond the shadows. And so the last and the perfect Adam will yield and surrender to his father's plan of redemption in order to save humanity. The first garden was spoiled by sin. The second garden was hollowed by Christ. The first garden brought forth condemnation. The second garden brings hope, the promise of salvation. And so look what it says. When you consider what Jesus endures, I'm hoping that you're going to pause even in the text. I I hope that you're going to think about what you're reading. I hope that you're going to consider the love that he has for you. And I'm hoping that you will be persuaded to pray. Because I suspect that in the not too distant future, there's going to be a time of trial and there's going to be a time of sorrow and there's going to be a time of To pray. Jesus comes to this garden to pray. And there's a reason why he comes to the garden to pray. Because a battle is about to be waged. A battle that involves temptation and profound distress. There's a battle that's going to take place about whether or not he's going to go God's way or his own way. Whether he's going to honor God's will or his own will. And each and every one of you will face the same challenge. You will wake up one morning and you will be faced with the temptation, the test. Am I going to go in the direction that God is leading me or am I going to walk away from it? Am I going to embrace God's plans and God's purposes and God's will for my life or am I going to walk away from it? You see, Jesus is going to be anticipating his death. And it may surprise you. For me to encourage you to anticipate your own. I got good news and bad news. Which do you want to hear first? Well, part of the bad news is everyone barring the rapture of the church is going to die. That's part of the bad news. But let me begin with the good news. The good news is that the vast majority of people who are listening to the sound of my voice is going to die a death that is very, very easy. There's a few of you who are going to die hard, a very few. And I hope and pray that I can pray for you in that hour. Death can be easy. Death can be hard. But it will never, ever, I promise you, I promise each and every person who's listening to the sound of my voice, your death will never be hard like Jesus' death. Although it might be filled with pain and it might be filled with pressure and it might be filled with circumstances that you wouldn't welcome for yourself or for anyone else. It will never be like Jesus' death. And look what it says in verse 33. And he took Peter and James and John with him and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. I want you to see the picture. They enter into the, the garden They leave eight disciples at the entrance of the garden. And then Jesus takes three with him. He takes Peter and James and John to witness the events. This is the same Peter and James and John who witnessed the transfiguration of Jesus on on another mountain. And I suspect there's a reason why Jesus, again, brings Peter, James, and John. One of the reasons is to witness the events that unfold that we're reading about this morning. But I'm going to suggest to you that there's another reason why Jesus brings Peter, James, and John. And it's a completely human reason. 
The reality is that Jesus is completely human and he is completely God. He's not 50% God and 50% human. He isn't half and half with Godness leaking into one side and humanity leaking into the other. Jesus is a real human being with a real life. His heart beats the same blood as yours. He has skin and bones and a central nervous system. And like human beings in deep distress, he hungers for human sympathy and human fellowship, sometimes in a deep place, a dark place, a desperate place. You, you know what? You want companionship and comfort. Sometimes you want someone to hold your hand as you go through a difficult time. And Jesus will pray. And as Jesus prays, he's going to return Again, to his earthly companions, and then he's going to return again to his earthly companions, and he's going to return again to his earthly companions as he looks for support, as he looks for encouragement, as he looks for prayer support. And look at the text itself. The word translated, he began to be troubled. It translates a Greek word that consists of a prefix, a, a root word and a su- suffix, ek, thram, beo. Mark is the only New Testament writer who uses this term. He uses it four times in three chapters. Mark chapter 9, Mark chapter 14, Mark chapter 16. It's always in the passive. It always means to be amazed. But it is this sense of amazement that combines with terror or awe. It's often translated to be deeply distressed. Jesus is about to enter this spiritual dark fog, a darkness, a dense outer darkness before the cross of Calvary. He's going to find himself in a place of submission and condemnation for our sin. And so in verse 34 it says, Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. No wonder Jesus says, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. One Bible writer, Sweet, writes, quote, The Lord was overwhelmed with sorrow, but his first feeling was one of terrified surprise. Long as he had foreseen the passion which came clearly into view, its terrors exceeded his anticipation. And over and over again, Jesus has prophesied, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be executed. It's going to happen. The journey gets closer and closer. He's in Jerusalem. And now he has penetrated the fog. I don't know if you've ever seen something or read about something in pictures and then you saw it for yourself and it took your breath away. I think about that the very first time I saw the Grand Canyon. I'd read about it and seen pictures of it. My wife and my children, we make the journey. Uh, We're driving across the United States. We come to the edge of the cliff that's called this Grand Canyon, this gigantic hole in the earth. And you come to the edge of the very precipice. And for me, it took my breath away. I went, I, I know I've seen pictures of it and I know that it was described as being awesome, but I had no idea that it was going to be like this. And there seems to be that sense that takes place here for Jesus. The word translated exceedingly sorrowful. It's, it's, it's again, a Greek compound word, peri, lupos. You know that word. We get the word periscope from it or perimeter. Um, perimeter means a circle and, and lupos means sorrow. And so peri lupos is a word in the Greek language that means to be surrounded by sorrow. It's like grief, depression, pain, sorrow draws a circle around your life and there doesn't seem to be any exit. There's this penetrating fog. The sorrow and the depression circles you and begins to smother you. And you wonder whether or not you're going to survive. 
Know what Jesus says. I'm encircled by sorrow, even to death. This is this overwhelming sense in which you are in such profound circumstances that you think you're going to die. I don't know if you've ever felt that way or if you know someone who has. They're surrounded, encircled by depression or sorrow so much so that they can't even imagine a world in which they escape. Last week on my radio program, I interviewed a man who tells the story of his upbringing and of the hard circumstances in which he lived and the pain and the depression and, uh, and the weakness and the wickedness of all of the things that he, he had ever done. And he came to a point in his life where he thought that he would take his life and he took a revolver and he placed one bullet in it and he spun the chamber and he put it to his temple. And he pulled the trigger and he did it not just once and not just twice and not just five times and not just ten times. He did it over and over and over again. And then he pointed it at the ceiling and pulled the trigger and it exploded. I don't know if you've ever been in a circumstance where you were so afraid that you were going to continue a living and you were so afraid that you might die. That's exactly how Jesus is feeling right at this very moment in this particular place and at that particular time. And if you've ever prayed a prayer, if you've ever wondered, if you've ever shot a prayer to heaven and go, Jesus, I don't know if you understand I want you to understand the ridiculousness of that prayer because no one knows about darkness and sorrow more than him. The writer of Hebrews in chapter five, verse seven says, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him, who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. Some Bible teachers have suggested that this agony, this distress of Jesus is so great and so powerful that apart from prevailing prayer and the presence of an angel, He isn't going to make it to the cross. This is going to kill him. Warren Rearsby writes, quote, Our Lord's struggle in the garden can be understood only in the light of what would happen to him at the cross. He was made sin for us. Second Corinthians 521. He will bear the curse of the law. Galatians chapter three, verse 13. It isn't simply the physical suffering that almost overwhelms him with anguish and sorrow, but the contemplation of being forsaken by his father. Mark 1534. This was the cup that he describes in John chapter 18, verse 11. According to Hebrews chapter five, verses seven, eight and nine, he asks to be saved. Not so much from death, but out of death. That is, he's raised from the dead and the father is going to honor his request. Jesus experiences an overpowering burden of distress and horror from what the anticipation. I'm going to suggest to you the anticipation of physical death, the anticipation of the emotional crushing circumstances and the anticipation of having the sum and the substance of all of sin placed on him. I don't think that we can be completely dismissive of the physical role. Look, I hate going to the dentist. Just the thought of going to the dentist, of him sticking those needles in my mouth. Not pleasant. But let me ask you a question. Which is more painful for you? The needle or the anticipation of the needle? As you look at the needle, as you see it drip the fluid, and as it grows right before your eyes. Sometimes it's the anticipation of pain that can be overwhelming. For some of us, a flu shot turns us into a tailspin. But imagine a diagnosis of cancer, or of a heart transplant, or of a spinal tap. 
My young son Jonathan, when he was very much younger, was diagnosed with a condition that his body, his brain was producing way more spinal fluid than it it should have. And it was causing him such pain and sorrow. And we took him to the doctor and the doctor said, I have to alleviate some of his spinal fluid. And he took a needle that looked to be that long. And I'll never forget, I placed Jonathan on his stomach, looking me in the face. And I said, look at your dad. Just keep your eyes on me. Keep your eyes on me and watch the needle sink into his back and penetrate his spinal column and then watch it begin to fill with fluid. We're talking about overwhelming pain. And Jesus moves further. He moves deeper. He goes further and deeper into the garden. He goes further and deeper alone. And it isn't just simply in the anticipation of the physical pain. It isn't just simply in the anticipation of the mental and the emotional trial. Jesus says, stay here and watch. It's in the continuous It's in the present imperative, a continuous action. Keep watching, keep watching, keep watching. There's a time for sleeping and there's a time for watching and there's a time for praying. And the time for praying and the time for watching is when you find yourself in enemy territory. And that's exactly where they are, because in this impenetrable fog of darkness, this is the time of the night. This is the time when Satan is going to have his way. This is the time when the son of God is. Is going to have to surrender and be taken. And what are we supposed to do when we're surrounded by sorrow? What do we do when we face trial and difficulty and temptation? And the answer, of course, is watch and pray. The problem becomes we, we sleep when we should be praying and we pray when we should be sleeping. But Jesus invites them to pray and watch to watch for temptation to watch for the spiritual dangers we have to be like soldiers stationed in enemy territory and i don't know about you but if you've ever been in circumstances where you are in the enemy's territory you have to be hyper vigilant because you never know when the attack is going to come and when it's going to come and our our enemy like a roaring lion seeks whom he may devour and failure to watch means Sorrow and temptation that can surprise you and overwhelm you because the enemy is in the business of deception. And so like Jesus, we pray and like Jesus, our prayers must be humble. You're going to discover something in verse 35. He falls on the ground. It's relational. He cries out to his father, Abba. It's got to be persevering. We're going to see something in chapter 13. And that is that Jesus prays once in verses 35 through 38. He prays twice in verses 39 through 40. He prays a third time in verses 41 through 42 because the first time. Time doesn't yield comfort, security, and victory. He prays again, and there's not comfort, security, and victory. He prays the third time, and there's an overwhelming sense of peace and confidence and strength. In James chapter 5, verse 16, it says, The effective, fervent prayer of righteous men avail much. And so if you want to get the job done, sometimes you're going to have to pray with your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. And sometimes that prayer is going to come at an inopportune time. You see, if it was your father or brother or loved one who was imprisoned in an Iranian jail right at this very moment and they're handing down the sentence of death that you are going to hang in the morning, then all of a sudden fervent, effectual prayer becomes a part of your life. But the truth, the truth, the truth, if you haven't cultivated the discipline of reading your Bible and praying when the hour of prayer comes, you're not going to be able to do this. 
And what about the prospects of emotional pain? Jesus was clearly aware of Isaiah's prophecy. Jesus knew that the Messiah would be despised and rejected of men and afflicted. Jesus knew that he was going to be the sacrificial lamb. He knew that he would be abandoned and forsaken by the most part of his followers. He knows about being spit on and tortured and the crown of thorns pressed into his brow. The mock trials being tortured and stripped. He knows that he's going to be placed on a physical cross. He knows what it's like to be abandoned and forsaken and to be left utterly alone. And you might have a tiny taste. You might have a difficult experience. You might have an unpleasant circumstance. Does Jesus anticipate not just the physical pain and the emotional pain, but the spiritual pain? Again, Isaiah 53, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And you've got to begin to understand that he is going to be treated like a prisoner. He is going to be treated like a criminal. He is going to be treated like a rapist and a thief and a murderer, but not just any rapist or thief or murderer, but every rapist, thief and murderer. He is going to bear this your sin. All of your sin is going to be laid upon him and your sin and your sin. And it isn't just the sum and the substance of all of the people who are in this room or who hear the sound of my voice. But imagine every single person from the moment that time began when Adam is created until the last person breathes their last breath. The sum and the substance of the pain And the punishment will be laid on him. And Jesus will suffer more than anyone has ever suffered. And his death will be harder than the hardest death. Some people will argue, well, I know of physical circumstances where people have faced way worse. And I'm going to suggest to you that you haven't. Because you've never met a single person who is more innocent than Jesus, more sinless than Jesus, more righteous than Jesus. No one has ever been more clean, more pure, more holy. And now you begin to understand that when Jesus quotes Psalm 22 and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It says in verse 35, he went a little farther. He fell on the ground. Note that and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. In Matthew's gospel, chapter 26, verse 39, we read he went a little farther. He fell on his face and prayed, saying, oh, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Matthew uses the aorist tense. Mark the imperfect tense for both verbs. We might read this. And having gone a little farther, he was falling on the ground. And praying. Let me paint the picture for you. The picture is of Jesus staggering, stumbling under the weight And the pressure of the anticipation of the physical, mental, emotional, spiritual circumstances. I don't know if you've ever seen someone who has been hit with a baseball bat or punched in the chin or someone whose legs have been taken out from them. That's the picture that you should be seeing. Picture a person who is disoriented, staggering, stumbling. He is staggering and stumbling, not because he's. Innocent or weak. This is the agony of his soul. And he lies prostrate on the ground. He assumes the position of ultimate humility. His face and is pressed deep in the dirt. And that's what sorrow will sometimes do. It will place you in a prone position. When you would rather be standing, you would rather be sitting. You might face a circumstance where even laying down becomes horrifically painful. But Jesus, with his face in the dirt, prone in the position of humility, prays, Abba, 
father. By the way, again, this is an Aramaic expression, which is the tender expression of a child to his or her father, Abba. The prayer is humble. The prayer is relational. The prayer is persevering. He prays once. He prays twice. He prays again. The expression in verse 35, he went a little farther and fell on the ground and prayed. Imperfect tense, indicating ongoing. He prays. He keeps on praying. He's just not mumbling under his breath, but it's one continuous stream. It's an outburst and an expression of petition. I think it's impossible to exaggerate or overestimate the spiritual crises that he's facing in the Garden of Gethsemane. And what does he pray? What's the burden of his prayer? Is it to be excused from the cross? Again, we know from other New Testament passages that the Messiah comes into the world for this express purpose over and over again. Jesus has said, I have come down from heaven to do my father's will. The Bible says that he's came to seek and to save that which is lost. The John the Baptist points to him and says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus, I'm going to suggest to you is praying. But I'm going to suggest that he's not praying just simply that he be excused from the cross. That he's praying if there's any other way, if there's any other way, if there's any other way by which sinners can be saved other than his death and his burial and his resurrection. Let God make that way known or make that way manifest. Is there some other option? And by the way, for every philosopher, every theologian, every critic, every skeptic who wants to believe that there are multiple ways to God, that there's lots of ways to be saved. Let's let the discussion begin right here and right now in this place. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to join Jesus in the dirt, in the garden of Gethsemane. Watch him shake and listen to him pray. If there's another way. If there's an option number two. Is there an option number three? Surely there must be another way to be saved. If you're a good person, can't you be saved? If your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, can't you be saved? What if you have sincere convictions? Can't you be saved? How about if you're born in a remote area of the world where the revelation of God and the gospel of God has not penetrated? Think of it for just a moment. Think about all of the possibilities that people have offered. And now listen, listen to heaven's answer. Listen, listen to what the Lord says in response to Jesus's prayer. Do you know what you hear? Silence, silence. There is no answer. And that is the answer. There is no other way under heaven whereby men must be saved. There is no other way because the problem of your sin and the circumstances of your life necessitates the reality that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And unless you understand the exceeding sinfulness of your sin then you'll never understand the prayer that he has just prayed. And look what it says in verse 36. He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. There's one other context when Jesus uses that same expression. The religious leaders come with a question about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And Jesus talks about the reality that it's one man and one woman forever. And that if you get married, you should stay married. And the disciples said, explain it to us. And Jesus says, if you get married, stay married. And the disciples said, well, if that's the case, then it's probably better that no one ever gets married. I mean, who could live under those circumstances? And it's that context that Jesus says with human beings, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. 
Jesus is in the moment of despair and distress and he's praying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Listen to the servant's prayer. It's familiar. Listen to the servant's prayer. It exalts what God can and can't do. Was there some physical or existential obstacle that would prevent God from acting? Can God deliver Jesus from the painful death that he's about to experience? Yes. But the issue isn't an existential issue. It isn't whether or not God has the physical resources or supernatural resources to deliver his son. The issue is a moral issue. William MacDonald writes, could the Almighty Father find any other righteous basis upon which he could save the ungodly sinner? The silent heavens indicate that there is no other way. The Holy Son of God must bleed that sinners might from sin be freed. The prayer of Jesus yields to the will of the Father. It isn't that Jesus can't, that the Father can't deliver him. He won't deliver him. Because the only satisfying circumstance that is going to resolve your problem of sin, the only way the resolution of sin is going to be fully, finally, and forever dealt with is in the sacrifice of Jesus. And note what it says. The prayer of Jesus yields to the will of the Father. Jesus expresses his utter revulsion of the cup of wrath. Take this cup away from me. Jesus knows the will of God is limited. Does that surprise you? The will of God is limited by the character of God and the love of God and the justice of God. All things are possible for God. Are there exceptions? Yes. God will not. God cannot. God will not and cannot do what is immoral or unjust or contrary to his nature. Can God make a circle and call it a square and still be telling the truth? The answer is no. Can God call goodness evil and evil goodness? Can God, like our culture and our society, celebrate sin and call sin good when it's in fact wicked? When in fact it is evil? When in fact it's disgusting? I don't know how. Many times people can get in front of a group of people and say homosexual behavior is good. and We should celebrate it. And, and divorce is good and we should celebrate it. And these things are good. Sin is good and we should celebrate it. And abortion is good and we should celebrate it. When in fact it is wicked and evil. When 55 million human beings have died as a result of wickedness. And we suggest even for a moment that God... God is 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 uncaring, indifferent, apathetic. When I was growing up, if your parents got a divorce, you know what they said? They said, oh, their marriage broke up. Oh, you come from a broken home. And they were right. There's something broken. Not mended, broken. This is the essence of sin. It's to assert our will against God's will. But Jesus is resigned to do God's will. And when Jesus prays, there's no hint of rebellion. There's no hint of self-will. There is no rebellion in the heart of Jesus concerning God's will. He says, nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. And when you pray. In the hour of test and, and in the hour of temptation, there's going to be two paths that are set in front of you. God's way and your way. God's will and your will. And Jesus is designed to do God's will. This is the exact opposite of the picture that we read about Satan in Isaiah chapter 14, where we see his arrogant rebellion as he asserts his will against God's will. And what are the characteristics of 
personal prayer that includes rebellion and presumption. You won't survive in the day of test and temptation. Tell me, when you pray for healing, when you pray for deliverance, when you pray for direction, when you pray for provision, when you pray for the welfare of your family, when you pray for the welfare of your church, when you pray for your leaders, when you pray for your nation, are you willing to submit to the will of God? And look what it says in verse 37. Then he came and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch with me one hour? Jesus finds his disciples sleeping. Now remember, again, Jesus has told them not to sleep, but to watch. And so here we find in Scripture a commentary about our fallen human nature. And you'll notice that Jesus calls him Simon. This is his earthly name. This is the name that Jesus didn't give him. Jesus warned them to watch and pray. And again, only recently, Peter has boasted of his undying love, his unyielding loyalty, his willingness to suffer and die. But you won't pray for five minutes or 10 minutes or 15 minutes or 30 minutes or 45 minutes. Or for one hour, when the time of trial, when the time of test comes, because guess what? In order for you to pass the trial and in order for you to pass the test, and here's the other thing that I guarantee you, listen carefully to what I'm about to say, because it will change your life if you will just simply do what I'm asking you to do. If you will cultivate an attitude of reading your Bible on a daily basis, if you will cultivate an attitude of praying, not forever, if you can just pray for one minute and that one minute becomes five minutes and that five minutes becomes 10 minutes and that 10 minutes becomes 15 minutes. Guess what? When you're called to to the hospital, when you have an all night vigil, when the prayers and of the saints are going to avail much concerning the incarceration of someone that you love concerning the test that you're about to face, that's when you're going to know whether or not that you're going to experience victory. Why? Because look what he says. The spirit is indeed willing. Why? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Our spirits are enthusiastic. But if you haven't cultivated the discipline, then your flesh will remain weak. Why? Look what Jesus says. Lest you enter into temptation. What is the test? What is the temptation? In this particular instance, will I go God's way or my own way? Will I trust him or not trust him? Will I submit to his will or won't I? In verse 39, it says again, he went away and prayed. And spoke the same words. He prays. The cloud is still there. He prays again. The overwhelming darkness remains. He prays again. Why is this important for each and every one of you? Because Jesus prays in a persevering fashion. Remember what he does. He prays in humility. He prays relationally. This is his father he's speaking to. And then he prays persistently. Again, in verse 39, he went away and prayed and spoke the same words. He comes back over and over and over again. And one of the things I need to point out to you, even in this passage, who is under trial? Jesus. Who's facing the cross? Jesus. But even in this difficult circumstance of personal pain and enormous trial, look how the shepherd tenderly loves the people who are supposed to be loving him. Look at how he's supporting them when they should be supporting him. But he knows the truth. He knows the truth about you. And he knows the truth about me. And in verse 40... The victory comes, it says, and when he returned, he found them asleep again for their eyes were heavy and they didn't know what to answer him. I want you to think about what that says. We can't help but notice Mark's attention shifts from the suffering servant to the sleeping disciples. He returns. They're still asleep. 
Mark uses an interesting phrase in the Greek language for their eyes were heavy. It's only here and only in this passage. Kata, bari, no menoi. Have you ever had a situation where you quite literally couldn't remain awake? I know what you, some of you think. Yeah, it's, but it's when I'm driving between Colorado and, and Kansas. No, think about it. It's illegal to drive and sleep at the same time. If you find yourself falling asleep at the wheel, good thing or bad thing? It's a bad thing. Let me just be blunt. Is it possible for you to be physically awake and spiritually asleep? Yeah. Is it possible for you to be physically asleep and spiritually awake? I think that the answer is yes. I think that what Jesus is in effect saying is that there comes a time, the time of the test, the time of the trial, when you have to supernaturally ask for the strength of God in order for you to go forward. Now remember, these are the three disciples who witnessed this transfiguration in Mark chapter 9, verse 6. The weakness of their flesh prevents them from exercising real sympathy with Jesus. And I want to draw your attention to that incredible statement in verse 40. And they did not know what to answer him. Do you understand what you just read? They did not know what to answer him. We don't know how to help you, Jesus. We don't know how to help you. And you might find yourself in a difficult circumstance where you don't know how to help. You don't know because the diagnosis has come. The incarceration has come. You don't know. You, you don't think that you have the physical or the emotional tools. You don't have the gifts and the callings in order to deal with whatever it is that you think that you have to deal with. And you underestimate the value of prayer. You, you fail to recognize that the moment that you decide to pray, it's an admission that he can and that you can't. And that when you pray, you're calling on the resources of heaven to provide hope and strength and encouragement. The disciples have no idea how to help Jesus. And sometimes you have no idea how to help each other. And I'm here to tell you. I'm here to tell you that humble prayer, personal relationship prayer, persevering prayer can bring about results that you never imagined. And look what it says in verse 41. Then they came the third time. He came the third time and he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? It's enough. The hour has come. What hour? What hour is he making reference to? It's the hour of trial. It's the hour of temptation. It's the hour of arrest. It's the hour of torture. It's the hour of incarceration. It's the hour of execution. It's come. But I want to note, I want you to note something. Even though Mark omits the details of the third period and the third prayer. It is exactly what has taken place earlier. And Jesus, even though he is anticipating the physical, the emotional and the spiritual battle, there is a sense of victory. And how do we know that? Because verse 42, get up, let's get going. See, my betrayer is at hand. When Jesus is done praying, he's in a completely different frame of mind. Something has happened to provide strength and comfort. I want you to think about what you're, what's going to happen in just a few moments. He says, get up. The time has come. We have to go, but they're not going to go far. Jesus is going to perform a miracle because... He has to correct the mistake of a misguided disciple. 
He's going to allow Judas to approach him. He's going to allow Judas to kiss him. He's going to allow the soldiers to bind him. He's going to allow them to take him to the place of judgment and torture and execution. And in the conversations that follow, it is with complete confidence and security in the knowledge of all that God is going to perform. That's victory. What about your Gethsemane? What about your place of trial and temptation? What about the place where you wake up one morning and you ask the question, am I going to go in the direction that God is calling me to or am I going to walk away from that direction? Am I going to embrace what God has for me or am I going to walk away from what God has for me? Am I going to do His will and go His way or am I going to embrace my own will and my own way? What do you do when you come to that place? It seems so silly to say, you must pray. And you must watch. And if you pray in humility, and if you pray relationally, and if you pray with perseverance, If you pray in that secret place, in the simplicity of faith, abiding in the will of God in Christ, specifically directed by direct petition in the power of the Holy Spirit. You're going to be able to say yes to the Father's will and no to your own. You're going to be able to say yes to the way in which he's called you to walk. And no to the direction that you're tempted to go. But that's for next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy and your love. Lord, we thank you that the problem of our sin is satisfied in the person of Jesus. And if there was another way to be saved because we were ignorant or stupid, blind to the revelation of God. If we could be sincere in our guilt and our wickedness as if that would redeem us. But Lord, you loved us even while we were sinners and that Jesus died for us when we needed him most. And so, Heavenly Father, again, we pray that you would place within our hearts a deep desire to cultivate the discipline of spiritual vigilance, watchfulness, and prayer. Prayer that's marked by humility. Prayer that's marked relationally. Prayer that's persevering and powerful. Prayer that refuses to stop when the first isn't answered the way that we like or the second isn't answered the way that we like. But the persevering prayer that brings us to a place of submission and humility and willingness to do whatever it is that you have for us. In Jesus name. Amen. Let's stand.